Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 9th, 2019. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Life Went On, He Slipped Out. Helping busy people think about time. If you missed it, here are the Cliff's Notes. There is enough time to do everything you need to do to make meaning out of your life. One of the, our favorite complaints, I'm so busy, is either a cop-out or a sin because there is no more time that we could possibly have. God has given us all the time there is. So work Play, love, pray, and you will find God. Or to paraphrase the writer of Ecclesiastes later in his book, he says, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. God has long ago approved what you do. Celebrate. Enjoy life with the partner you love. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We're all going to die. That's it. Now, this summer, we're just trying to unpack some of the details of this interesting wisdom. But there's another introductory aspect we ought to deal with before jumping in with both feet, because it's quite possible to read the text, as a scholar named Sibley Towner says, through the lens of predetermination. Towner says, verses 9, the verses that immediately follow the seasons, that those verses suggest that is exactly how we should read. Verse 11 of that chapter says, God has made everything suitable for its time. In other words, you are born and you die, and between those two fateful dates, you laugh some and you cry some, you make love and you make war, you work and you retire, gathering stuff in one stage of life and throwing it away in another, and none of this is in your hands. God has made everything suitable for its time. Towner's commentary continues, If everything occurs on the God-given schedule, there's little real possibility of moral action. Eat, drink, be merry. Don't worry about anybody else. But surely this is not what any biblical writer could mean, is it? It would be a cynical view indeed if one's theology opened the door to predeterminism but slammed it shut to the idea of free will. Are we free? Are you free? Or are we just cogs in the wheels of some unalterable divine plan enduring the bad and clinging fleetingly to the good, neither of which really mean anything in the end? Towner says commentators and preachers alike have generally not wanted to consign this beautiful poem into the grim jaws of necessity, and they have warrant. He suggests instead that we read with the understanding that the fixed orders provide structure rather than calendar, making individual human moral decision-making possible. Read that way, one can hear in this poem a challenge to be wise, to be ethical, 
to discern what one's, when one's actions are in keeping with God's time and then to act decisively. Maybe it's preferable to think in terms of a divine purpose in our lives rather than to say God has a plan. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this philosophical issue, but the questions of human and divine work, theologians call it agency, human and divine agency, these have been hotly debated for generations. And we still hear hints of a religious bent toward predeterminism when someone says everything happens for a reason. In other words, God did it, and there's really nothing we can do about it. And there are the radical materialists, those atheists who cite genetic determinism as the invisible, unalterable hand guiding every action. In this view, things aren't good or bad. There really are no categories of moral or immoral. We're all just complex bags of chromosomes acting in response to the selfish genetic drive just to stay alive. You aren't free. Your genes determine everything you do. Now, if everything happens for a reason, if God is literally in control, I'm wasting my breath preaching moral responsibility. On the other hand, I am not willing to consign the idea of morality itself to the dustbin of some past quaint religious superstition. Evolution brought us to the moment of moral consciousness, and God is calling us always beyond the limits of biological necessity. The notion of freedom is as radical for biology as for theology, as consequential for religious life as for politics and human history. We are free. There is no love. There is no meaning. There can be no purpose otherwise. I believe it. We are free. But none of us can choose the particulars of our birth. Ken Godwin always told us that the most important decision you ever make in life is choosing your parents. You get it? There's nothing you can do about that, and it's the most consequential thing that ever happens to you. Where you are born, to whom you are born, sets your life trajectory in such strong ways. We are free, but none of us can choose the particulars of our birth, and we have no ultimate control over, over death. Though the precise dates and details are not predetermined by God, Because they are not ours to control, life and death can be said to be in the hands of God. Maybe this is why those moments are considered the holiest moments, as Amy has already told you. If you have witnessed a birth, you know what I mean. If you have watched someone gather their last breath, you know what I mean. These are holy moments. God is there. And maybe the fact of our radical freedom, bookended by these two not-in-our-control moments, is why all the ethical and biomedical issues involving birth and death are so troubling to us. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. But when? And what actually constitutes life? Do living tissues constitute a life? When does life begin. And just because someone is biologically alive, is she or he actually living? 
And is there a difference? And does it matter to us or does it matter to God? When does life really end? We live in the greatest moment in history. Can you even imagine a time before, you know, take your pick, before antibiotics or before vaccines? Can you imagine living before x-rays, before the birth control pill? Can you imagine living before open heart surgery? And can you even imagine where we are going in the future? Technology has changed our standard of living, and it has changed our understanding of God. Sometimes I hear people pontificate, we don't need to be playing God. Well, let me disagree, because I believe we've been playing God since the cavemen learned how to control fire. Thanks be to God. Until Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928, countless people died from infections, and most just said it was God's will. Everything happens for a reason. But penicillin gave us the ability to understand and manage most bacterial infections, and this is just one of many examples of our ever-encroaching ability to play God with our own lives. I mentioned the discovery of the birth control pill because there's probably no other single advance that has provided more freedom or more empowerment to women the world over. The ability to control conception has changed women's lives, which has changed the world for the better. Though many people still disagree with this, conception, obviously the gateway to birth, they say, is God's to control. Out of this understanding comes the decades-long hysteria over abortion, which has recently played out in a number of repressive state laws enacted as cynical ploys to fight to overturn Roe v. Wade, that federal law giving women legal access to control their own reproductive health. Now, there's too much to say here. You can talk with me about this afterwards if you would like. But a number of important issues figure into this debate, the heart of which or how we actually define life. Pro-life? Really? There is a time to be born. Let us be concerned with life, with birth, and with every opportunity for new life, for rebirth through education and awareness and acceptance to a spirit ever open to God's life among us. And there is a time to die. There may be... Uh, No more cognitive dissonance about death. There may be more cognitive dissonance about death than anything else. What I mean by that is every single person in this room knows that everyone who lived, everyone who will live, is going to die. It is the one unalterable fact of our existence. That inescapable reality, however, does not make any of us any more ready to deal with the fact when death shows up at our door. Our friend, the late Ken Godwin, I've already mentioned today, believed there was, more, there was no more important conversation we could have as a nation than an honest discussion of death and dying. Now, Ken could cite a dozen social science studies to support everything he ever said, so he knew the numbers. I have forgotten precisely, but something like 
90% of all the money we spend on health care is devoted to the last 12 months of people's lives. 90% of every dollar we spend is devoted to keeping people alive in the last 12 months of their life. Now, it's not that we shouldn't want to take care of ourselves or one another. It is that no health care system or policy and no one's individual wealth can stave off death. Our obsession with not dying is breaking the national health care system and leaving far too many people literally bankrupt, spending every dime they have to keep mama alive. Mama is going to die. There are things worse than death. We ought to talk about this. And Christians, more than anyone else, need to put our money where our theology is and learn that God is as trustworthy in whatever comes next as God is good and gracious in this life. There is a time to die. That process is as natural and can be as beautiful, as revealing, as meaningful as the rest of this life should be. As my late friend Dr. William E. Hull was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease, he laboriously penned the words to the book, The Quest for a Good Life, a Christian Guide. After he died, his daughter Susan, one of the most eloquent writers I know, wrote the following as a foreword. As we think of living and dying, this is a good place to end. Andrew kept a certain quiet, still suit aside from the rest. As his grandson and caregiver, Andrew had dressed my father daily for the last four years. On a particular morning in December, Andrew pulled out the quiet suit and maneuvered into its limp sleeves and legs my father's equally limp limbs. He buttoned up a particular shirt that he had once given him, knotted an elegant tie, and chose the eternity cufflinks that my father loved. Across my father's legs, he laid the lap blanket I had woven for him. Andrew put on Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and let it pound through the house. My brother drove down. He opened the door and entered the room as the chorus rose to its most joyful, joyful. There, in that room that had been home for the last five years, my father lay in peace. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find that I live just the length of it, said Diane Ackerman. I want to know I have lived the width of it as well. My father lived the length and the width, the height and the breadth of this life, I want to say. He lived every bright corridor and dark corner without bitterness or regret, but with a grateful spirit, with eyes that lit a room, with a presence that roared. He lived with the music in his mind, making of it a symphony of gladness and joy. Without the pleasures of taste on his tongue, he drew his wheelchair to the dinner table and fed on the presence of his family. Without the relief of conversation, he lit up a room with his wide and curious eyes, his face yearning with aliveness. Without legs that could walk, he marched his hand over a hill of blank pages, completing seven books in the course of his illness. 
Bill would write, handwrite everything and give it to his uh, secretary who would transcribe it. And there in the end, when he couldn't write, he would speak to his grandson, Andrew, who would write and then give it to Joellen in the office and she would transcribe. Some people talk about one's battle with ALS, but I never saw a battle. My father didn't fight the truth. He lived it with humility and grace and great eruptions of humor. And then, as we are all asked to do, he stepped aside. The body has a right to die, he told me, and he lived in that peace. Without fanfare, in the quiet of his sleep, breath stopped. Life went on. He slipped out. My father taught me about living the width and breadth of this given life, spilling the banks of the river. He taught me to reach for the height of it beyond the seeing. And in the end, he taught me about wading into the depths of dying, not with fear, but with a fierce faithfulness to the gift and to the giver. He chose a good death. I can say with a full heart, I wish to be so bold in the fullness of time and find my own. Mortals, join the mighty chorus which the morning stars began. Love divine is reigning o'er o'er us, binding all within its span. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us sunward in the triumph song of life. Life went on. He slipped out. For the grace to die a good death, to die with the dignity and majesty befitting the awe and mystery of a good birth. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.